0: Uh, we usually stand together as we read God's word. Since this is a long passage, you may be seated and let's read, re- let me read the passage uh, on which the sermon space. Please be seated. As you can see, your bulletin, the passage on which the sermon space this morning from, is from Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 28. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul Looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, "Stand upright on your feet." And he sprang up and began walking. And the crowd saw that, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voice, voices saying in Lyconium, "The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men." Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was a chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they turned their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, he scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead when disciples gathered about him, he rose up into the city, and on the next day he went, went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that your word will take root in our hearts, humble us, transform us, and encourage us. May you speak through them as they preach your word to us, and may it bear fruit in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Roger. Well, what is the wasted life? If you go online, you can find a great deal of advice on how not to waste your life books and podcasts on, with, with titles like Eight Signs That You Are Wasting Your Life. Quit doing these six things today. Eight things successful people do. You may be wasting your life in the wrong job. You may be wasting your life with the wrong marriage partner. All advice that is very self-serving, self-determining, and self-seeking. Without any consideration at all, that there may be some overriding, God-given, divine purpose for our life that will provide meaning and satisfaction. The basic assumption in our day is that we are our own. We own our own life. We belong to ourselves. I define myself and I, de- I will determine my life and live it the way I want to live it. It's a heavy burden that people bear and one that cro- causes a, a great deal of anxiety and stress. And all quite contrary to the biblical idea that we are made in the image of God and with a God-given purpose, and that we are not our own, according to 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The recent Grammy Awards uh, announced the best album of the year was, uh, would go to t- Taylor Swift, that was no surprise. Uh, the best song of the year uh, went to Billie Eilish. It's a song that is entitled, What Was I Made For? It's a good song and, 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 and poses a, a very important question. What was I made for? It doesn't give an answer to that question, but she says, uh, "She says, begins the song in this way. I used to float, now I just fall down. I used to know, but now I'm not sure. What was I made for? What was I made for? Another way of posing the question is, what is the good life? What is it that makes life worth living? Miroslav Wolf, a Christian professor at Yale University, has been offering a course to the students there at this very secular university with the title, What Makes Life Worth Living? And the students have been flocking to take that course. What makes life worth living? In 1885, six of the brightest students in Cambridge University, and one from the Royal uh, Royal Academy, decided to give up their promising careers and become missionaries in China. They're still known as the Cambridge Seven. You could look it up about their lives. It happened during the the highest point of of Victoria's reign and, and a time of prosperity, This is the time when people used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. Hudson Taylor had already gone to China and started his what was called China Inland Mission and was issuing the call, like Francis Xavier before him, issuing the call, let the young men give up their small ambitions and come serve Christ in China to the ministering in the poor and and, and rural districts in China where disease was common and the people were uneducated uh, was not a very glamorous idea for Cambridge graduates to be going there. And yet these young men uh, gave up um, their their careers and went to China. And, And some of them did contract diseases and some of them did die in China. But many of their friends and families back in England thought that they were wasting their lives, throwing away good careers as surgeons and lawyers and businessmen to go to some obscure village in China. One of the most well-known of these seven was Charles, C., Charles T. Studd, who at that time was the greatest cricket player in England uh, and, uh, and, and whose heart has grown, grown quite cold toward the Lord. Uh, but then one day he found himself with his brother who was dying, and uh, he was he moved to ask the question, "What's it all about? What is my life really going? Where is my life really going? What am I living for?" And at that time, D.L. Moody was having some evangelistic meetings in London, and he went to one of those, and he gave his life to Christ, and became a part of the Cambridge Seven going to China. These men were following in the pattern of the greatest missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, in little while you you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it seems clear as you read the book of Acts that this is an outworking of Jesus' promise and, and, and prophecy in Acts one eight. There's these ever increasing circles of witness of the gospel as it goes from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to Judea, often because of persecution, to Samaria, to Rome, and to the ends of the earth. So the book of Acts is, is, is follows this outline. And we're, we're we're picking up here just just a little snippet of Paul's first missionary journey, that he was sent on. A little, it's a whirlwind tour. We're going to be moving really quickly through this, and then try to have find some takeaways for us for our lives and mission today. So hold on to your hats. We're going to be moving quickly. He was sent out. He in the previous chapter, Paul and Silas, or Saul, Saul uh, Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas in chapter 13, his name gets changed from Saul to Paul, are sent out by the church in Antioch of Syria. This was the first Jew-Gentile church, and it was also the first place where the disciples were called Christians. And the Holy Spirit spoke to them as they were worshiping and praying to him, saying, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. We read this in our meditation. And so they fasted and they prayed and they laid hands on them and they sent them out on this journey. And it was understanding that they would come back to the church and report what God had done during their time of travels. So the first missionary journey in Acts 13 begins them with them taking a ship from Syria to the island of Cyprus, uh, then to Asia Minor, which today we would call Turkey, Going through several of the cities of, of that ancient uh, territory—Perga, Antioch of Pisidia. There's two Antiochs in this passage. Uh, preaching uh, in the synagogues where there w- where there were Jews present, and then to the Gentiles to present the gospel to them, and having amazing responses of many people coming to faith, converts among the Jews and those who had uh, previously converted to Judaism converts among the Gentiles. But there was also opposition, every step along the way. Opposition, people who were rejecting and trying to disturb uh, Paul's, Paul's mission to the Gentiles especially. So the first stop here is Iconium, verses 1 through 7. Central Turkey, in, in, in today's terms, this is a Greek city, but also had a number of Jews uh, from the diaspora who had settled there It's an agricultural city with two rivers running through the city. And there they were speaking boldly for the Lord. And this is a key to all always, of Paul's missionary work, speaking boldly for the Lord. Uh, A great number of Jews and Gentiles believed, and some of the Jews, however, refused to believe and were were jealous and stirred up because of Gentile conversion and divided the city. And then the text says, poison the minds of the people. So it's a really strong term, isn't it? Poisoned the minds of the people. Poison is something that enters your system, you know, and then it just permeates throughout the whole system until it finally shuts down. If It's a strong poison. Verbal poison uh, enters our mind uh, and, and travels through our whole way of thinking more quickly than we can even imagine. Uh, I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been poisoned. Sometimes we, 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 hear, we hear a word of slander or a word of gossip, and it just sort of enters our mind and so quickly, and it just feels like, oh, I think I've just been poisoned. And we have to pray and, th- and ask the Lord to cleanse us to remove that from our thinking. These legalistic Jews had poisoned the minds of the young converts, uh, we don't know what they said, but they were probably saying something like, these men are liars, they're part of a cult, they think they're superior to Moses, they don't obey the law, uh, and, uh, and they're leading you, away, leading you astray. Um, how could Jesus be the Messiah? He was killed in Jerusalem. But the attack was so severe and so strong uh, that the, the people rose up to stone them, to try to stone them but somehow they slipped away and then went and boldly preached the gospel in other cities. You would think after an experience like that, they would say, okay, enough of this. I think we'll go back to Antioch and, uh, and tell them, well, the people weren't very very kind to us. But no, they continued on. They just moved on to other cities uh, and continued to preach the gospel. They're going to come back here to this city as well. But it also says that... that they were speaking boldly and, and that the Lord was granting signs and, and wonders to attest to their message. Miracles uh, in the Bible are always connected to the preaching of the word. They're not sort of a standalone spectacle or a magic show of some sort. They're, the purpose is to attest to the, to the authority and preaching of the word. And this was an apostolic ministry. Uh, it was confirmed by God's message of grace, but even down through the centuries, it seems like as the gospel goes into new territories and new continents and new people groups, that is often accompanied by special, unusual events. It might be a, a miracle of healing of some sort. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we get reports in the Muslim world, especially of, of people having dreams, seeing Jesus in a dream. And, and uh, God is working in, in unusual ways at, often in these cases. I, I remember speaking at a conference at, in the Balkans uh, in southeastern Europe, in Serbia, and uh, a Christian student conference, and then and all of a sudden two young men, students from uh, Kosovo, showed up at this conference, and they were Muslims. And they both uh, came, to the, came to us and they said, we, we have both seen Jesus in a dream. And we didn't know who it was, but as we talked to Christians and as we read the Gospels, we recognized that that the person we saw in our gene was Jesus. And we've come here to find out more about who he is. This was a time when there was war going on between these nations. So it was just a striking reminder that God is at work and God's spirit is at work in powerful ways. So next stop is Lystra. Lystra was a Roman colony, and there were apparently no Jews there, no synagogue. And so Paul and Barnabas went directly to the Greeks, Uh, these Greeks who were worshiping many Greek gods. uh, uh, But the first thing that happened upon their arrival, they encountered a, a man who had been lame from birth, had never walked. And for whatever reason, Paul was struck by this and set his eyes on him, and, 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 and called out to him, rise up, get up, and walk. And the man did that and sprung to his feet in front of the whole crowd. And everyone was so amazed uh, that they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. They must be, you must be, you must be one of the gods in human form. And and the tradition of that city, actually the legend in that city, was that 50 years ago the gods Zeus and Hermes had actually visited this city uh, in human form but were not recognized or received or welcomed by the people. And so they sent sent a a judgment upon the city, a, a flood that came to the city. And so when they saw this happen with Paul and Barnabas, they thought, we don't want to make this mistake again. So they began to worship them and make sacrifices to them. And at first, Paul and Barnabas didn't know what was going on because the people were speaking in their local language, their local dialect. Uh, but then uh, they realized it was happening, and they tore their clothes and said, No, we are, we are not gods. We are humans just like you. Don't, please don't do this blasphemous thing. So if they thought that, they, that this was Zeus and Hermes, Hermes who had come back to visit them. In the midst of all this, Paul then uh, kind of gives his a little mini sermon. So what do you say to a group of pagan uh, Greeks like, like this who are worshiping these false gods? Uh, if he was in the synagogue, he would reason, reason with them from the scriptures. But in this case, what do you say? Well, he talks to them. He says, we have, we have, we have come with good news and we're calling you to turn away from worshiping the false gods. And to worship the true and living God who made the heavens and the earth. Now the pagan priests were no doubt listening to all this as well. He is your creator. This God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything. But he has not left you without witness. You don't you don't you have not had the scriptures, but he has not left you without witness. The natural world. In the natural world, he has brought, he has given you rain, he has given you the earth, he has given you your crops your food and your joyful hearts that you can rejoice at the time of your harvest so that you can enjoy these things and respond with gratitude. So this was the sermon that Paul gave to them. And still they could barely restrain the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. But the great missionary Paul finds a common ground to speak to these people, finds a bridge in which he can use to, to communicate the gospel to them reminds us in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Greeks I became a Greek, to the weak I became weak, that I might by all means save some. So to these un- uneducated pagans, he, becomes, he tells them the good news in a language that they can understand. It's an example to us to, find, to seek to find common ground with maybe unbelievers that are a part of our life. We share a common humanity. We're all, all made in the image of God. We might share some common interests. It might be sports, or music, or, or science, or computers. What do you love to do? Is it golf, or biking, or gardening? One way to think about evangelism is do what you love to do with non-Christians. Do what you love to do with those who are yet unchurched. But again, the opposition arose. The Jewish zealots from other cities came to this city, uh, came to to the the city that they were in, and began to stir up the people again. And you could not be saved apart from circumcision and keeping the law. And they won, won them over to such a degree that the people rose up against Paul and Barnabas, and Paul was stoned in the city by these people in Lystra. Stoned. Wow. Sometimes I read this and I thought, I wonder what Paul was thinking at this point, uh, besides horror. Uh, But I wonder if he was remembering another episode of stoning when he was on the outside. And Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, was on the inside of that circle and was the one that the stoning, uh, with Paul's approval, with Paul standing guard over the, over the clothing of those who were involved. Stephen, who would become the first Christian martyr. And now Paul may have been thinking, I guess I'm going to be the next one. But somehow, he was, he, they, so they, they, they stoned him and assumed he was, he was dead and dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. And, and it says that the, that the disciples gathered around him and he rose up and walked back into the city. Interesting. Rose up and walked back to see. Well, we don't know. Was was Paul just knocked unconscious and assumed to be dead, or was this a divine intervention in which God resuscitated him? More likely, uh, and 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 caused him to come back to life. An amazing event. Paul later recounts uh, his 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 sufferings and. In, in, in Corinthians and talks about floggings and beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and then he says "Then once I was stoned. Not many people lived to tell about it. This was a mob. This was, was, was simply a mob activity. It wasn't. Uh, the Old Testament did talk about provisions for stoning with regard to certain laws. However, these, these pagans were stirred up as a mob. It was more like what we would call a lynching that they had, had done against Paul and Barnabas. And so he goes on and he goes back to the city, uh, you know. and I, the title of this is Unstoppable. I mean, as I read this passage, I just thought the gospel is unstoppable. And these, these, these servants of God are unstoppable. The Holy Spirit's work is unstoppable. And then the next day they do leave and go to Derby, continue preaching the good news, winning a large number of disciples uh, in that city as well. Well, they finish this, and then they're very close to going back to Antioch, the city that that had sent them out in Syria. But instead of that, they retrace their steps, and they go back through the same cities that they had just been in. They go back to Lystra, where he had been stoned. They go back to Iconium. They go back to all the same cities. And what are they doing? Uh, In spite of the opposition, they're encouraging and reminding and strengthening the believers, and telling them that they must go through, go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God, to stay true to the faith. Somehow they appoint elders in every city and establish churches. This is Paul's pattern. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. The pattern is that they go into a city, they do evangelism, they preach the gospel, they win many to the faith, they uh, then uh, they, they provide the authoritative apostolic teaching, they plant churches, they select and appoint elders, they commend them to the Lord with the full confidence that the Holy Spirit is with them, and they move on their way. And so they plant what we would call today indigenous churches, self-supporting, self-governing, self-propagating. So they come back to their home city. The first missionary conference takes place in Antioch. So we're having our missions conference or festival this week and next week. This, this is the first missions conference that we know of in, in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas make their way back across the Mediterranean Sea by ship, sailing to, uh, from Atalia back to Antioch, where it all began. And they gather the church together and they say, you have got to hear this, what God is doing. Wait till you hear this how God opened the door to the Gentiles, how many Jews have turned to him. We, and, the, and then they stayed a long time with the believers there. No doubt they had many stories to tell, many stories probably telling about how Paul was stoned and still survived to tell them about it. But they also had, were no doubt weary and exhausted. They were not traveling first class on this, on this journey. Uh, they needed to be replenished uh, both physically and spiritually and then set out again. It was a time of rejoicing. The church has trusted God by setting apart these, these brothers and setting them out. And now they see the fruit of their lab, labor beyond their wildest dreams. God continued to call Paul on other missionary journeys with other companions, three missionary journeys that are, that are detailed in the book of Acts and then the voyage to Rome uh, all fulfillment of Acts that 1.8, that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Rome and to the ends of the earth. So what are some takeaways that we can get from this? First of all, God's Spirit was powerfully at work in the world at that time, and he's still powerfully at work in our world. Jesus said, when I I leave you, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will, what? Convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's only because of the work of the Spirit that any of our evangelism or missionary work uh, is is even potentially fruitful. Without that, it would be futile. But J.I. Packer, some years ago, wrote this book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, uh, and basically saying, look, friends, we can relax about evangelism. It's not up to us. It isn't depending upon our clever thoughts, our clever tactics or words. It's the Holy Spirit who is at work. And he's still at work today. And we can have this confidence as we, as we have missionaries from our church, uh, 16 missionaries serving in 14 different countries around the world, have confidence that the Holy Spirit is still at work and you can have confidence that the Spirit is at work with your neighbors, your friends, and your family. Second takeaway for me is the power of the gospel to transform lives and to save people. Is the gospel still powerful today in our secular world, in our, in many cases, post-Christian world? After traveling for 35 years around campuses in this country and in other countries, 45 countries around the world, Uh, Among secular university students, I can say, yes, God is still using his gospel to transform lives. People are still coming to faith. We are seeing this still working in our day. Students, faculty, turning from skepticism to faith in Christ. But opposition is also real. It's another takeaway. Opposition is always going to be a part of the Christian mission and the Christian life. Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christians, it has been said there are more Christians being martyred today than at any other time in history. We talk about the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. The Muslim world remains a very difficult and dangerous place to bring the gospel Missionaries working there talk about spiritual strongholds. Uh, Paul calls it principalities and power, where only powerful prayer and extended prayer and blanketed prayer can break through into many of these places. But it is happening. People in the Muslim world are turning to faith in Christ Jesus. So we're going to be praying, noted in your bulletins, uh, for Ramadan this year. Uh, and praying for the Muslim world, and especially in Tunisia. Be watching for that. But what is the, what is the society in our, in our world today that is most resistant to the gospel? Leslie Newbegin was a missionary who, who labored for 40 years in India and then went back to his home country of, in England and concluded that the, that the culture that is most resistant to the gospel today is modern Western secular culture. And it is true, and and that's the culture that we live in. Today, in our country, uh, if you make any, any slight statement about exclusive claims to truth, you will be persecuted. You will be sneered at. You will be jeered. You will be mocked. It's considered outlandish to suggest that there is really a true truth. It's considered preposterous and sometimes undemocratic or even treasonous to believe that. In a culture where the, the reigning the idea is, I belong to myself, I, w- I have my own truth, thank you. I don't need your truth. But the opposition does not have the last word. God has the last word, and God's mission is unstoppable. And we cannot let ourselves become intimidated by the, by the ruling ideas of our own culture Uh, as well. And then fourthly, the the call to be witnesses to the ends of the earth is still in effect today. It's it's amazing how how much of the Great Commission was actually fulfilled in the first century and in the early centuries of the church. But this generation needs to hear the gospel. As we say, one generation will commend your works to the next. This generation needs to hear the gospel. I remember when when I was first asked if I would consider going to Eastern Europe and the former communist countries that were opening up and and be be involved in the student ministry over there, and I thought, no, these people have had their chance. They've had the the, the, the gospel. They're post-Christian countries. And my wife had to nudge me, and God had to nudge me and say, no, but this generation has not had their chance. This generation needs to hear the gospel and see it lived out in the lives of believers. And so it is still in effect. The missiologists talk about unreached people groups in our day, and that there are 7,000 7, unreached people groups in the world defined by a language, a distinct language and culture. And this involves 3.4 billion people people where there is little or no Christian witness or presence. There are frontier groups of people where, where people have, have never even met a Christian. There are no known Christians in these places where people have never met a Christian, never heard the gospel, never heard of Jesus, never seen the gospel lived out in the lives of believers or a community of believers. So back to our question, how not to waste your life. Jesus has an answer for this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you just remember that, you will not be wasting your life. It is God who defines who I am, why why I am here, what makes life worth living and satisfying, what is the wasted life and the fulfilled life. So how will I serve God's kingdom Purposes in my career and in my calling, in my place of living, in my place of work. As a Christian teacher, an engineer, social worker, who is a Christian engineer and a Christian teacher, not a Christian, not a teacher who happens to be a Christian, but a Christian teacher who is living out their faith, seeking righteousness and justice and witness in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my family. I'm not suggesting a two-tiered system here where there are full-time Christian workers and then the rest of us. No, it's not that. We are all called to be a part of the mission to the ends of the earth. We are all called to be a part of that in some way. But doesn't it seem reasonable for, for us college-age students or for the, those of us who are deeply into, into our careers. Doesn't it seem reasonable given the imbalance of Christian resources and Christian leaders in the world and, and, the, and the, the fact that 90, 95% of them are in the already, uh, already Christian, Christianized places because of that imbalance that, that we would at least ask God, God, would you have me, Go and be a part of your mission somewhere, cross cultural mission somewhere in the world. To, ask, to, to, to say the prayer to God, Lord, I am willing to do what you want me to do, to go where you want me to go, and to be what you want me to be. Cross cultural missions is a worthy calling. To be a part of the beautiful feet, beautiful feet people, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Our missions team in our church stands ready to support you, care for you, and, and pray for you if God calls you to go out in this way. And we can't wait to see who will be next to go out from among us to make disciples of the nations. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the example of the great apostle Paul, the greatest missionary who followed you unswervingly, unstoppable in the calling upon his life. Lord, where you have placed us, will you help us to know what it means to be your missionaries in this world, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods for the sake of your gospel, believing that your gospel is powerful and will continue to change lives.